his going into it and shaping it in the middle of it. He had such, I think he had a great need to give form to his thinking, to his feelings, to make things, to be a real maker. And he, I couldn't imagine Charles. And this might contradict what other people say who worked with him much more closely than I did. I'm just going back to my memory of that time. I assume it continued. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it just my image of that time. I couldn't have imagined him just sitting still, taking a few notes, speaking very quietly to an actor, maybe at the end of a scene, no, you know, going, having them come over and whispering to them, or something like that, or giving them the notes at the end of the evening. It wasn't like that. He was so stimulated by the creative process of the, re the rehearsal. And, and that play in particular, Turns in Hell, and every day he would but he would come up with a lot of ideas on the spot. It wasn't just about going in there and executing preconceived plans. He had some notion. A lot of it was made up on the spot. And I, I remember his hands a lot. The, the gestures? I remember gestures, but his, when he touched something, I, I felt it was very important to Charles. Like, this may be my own psychic orientation because of my own work to make things so when he would touch something he would give it a, a tangible reality to him. it was like the performance was coming alive coming manifest you know this chair will be here not here it has to be like this your hand should go this far back and at the same time I don't, he didn't direct people in a totally authoritarian way because then if they came up with something wonderful and my memory of it was that everybody also could throw in a lot come up with it he just let them fly so when you have those incredible talents he'd be a fool not to and he was very aware of that very very talented greatly gifted people so he might tell them something but if they broke it or they suggested something else or he might say try give some hint you know some way to go but no real specifics and watch what they did uh, That's why I remember, I don't know, learning, but it stayed with me the trans, uh, transition from a thought to physical reality. Uh, I just had the feeling that he would have an idea and he was so eager and it was like lightning to get it. A, light, a need, a very strong need, and, and, and realize with lightning rapidity to make the thought or the impulse tangible, make it physical, make it work in reality, in actuality, in a performance, but it didn't just stay in his head. That's right. One thing stays with me. Did you feel that he felt... I'll tell you something. Yeah. He said once that... Uh, I'm talking about genius. I know this is the 42nd Street. He's, he said that genius... Uh, if, you make, if you say you're going to make a genius... A genius isn't someone who has a great original idea... I'm paraphrasing. It's a, someone who says, I'm going to make a mountain made out of spaghetti. Else <coughs> might say, that's a genius idea. What incredible. I never thought of that. A mountain made out of spaghetti. So the genius is the person who makes a mountain out of spaghetti. It's not having the idea of it, the making of it. He said it with tremendous conviction. Well, he rarely said anything about tremendous 
conviction, buddy. It was the making of it. It really impressed me that how important it was for him. And the way he said it, it was very, very serious. It was very funny at the same time. It's not having the idea. It's realizing it. He's the person who actually makes that mountain of spaghetti. And, uh, and he, was, he was very much in touch with practical reality. He said people think art is, I don't know the exact word, but very funny was finding a space, was like the most important thing in art, or in the theater, was finding a space to perform it. Not having an idea for a play or writing great dialogue and brilliant characterization, it was finding a space. It was very much in touch with the practical need and difficulties of getting your work on. And but you see, when he would say that, it would be, sound funny. But it, it also, he, if it, were, if it were merely funny, he would never have gotten those plays on. He, at some level, he grasped the naked truth of it, as to not forget that you have all the great ideas in the world, you have no place to put it on, you can't afford the rent or whatever. What's the good of it? I mean, it was so important for him to, to make the work and to show it. And, and for him, that was... I suspect you weren't really an artist if you didn't produce in that tangible way. Not just have anything. Follow it through right to performance that you needed that manifestation in the world. Be an artist that would be unsentimental about finding a way to make it happen. Doing whatever it took to, to get us home. Not consider yourself too good to deal with Did practical you? realities. He was a map, he gave a master grand writing and all of that. He took it seriously, the business of being artist. I mean, he really did. One time he was reading the Small Street Journal exclusively, and the economics, and the experience of the economy and how what money works and funding. And By exclusively, you mean he, he didn't read any other paper? Any other paper? Nothing. For how long was this? For a period? I don't know, it was for a period. For some months, or I don't remember. But tell me that. That's all he was reading. It was the Wall Street? That's very funny. That's a that's an interesting thing too. I remember one time. You know. he also liked theater reviews of the Wall Street Journal. Do you know roughly when that was? No. Seventies, eighties. One thing he said. I was very funny. One time he came down and he had said, "I've made a breakthrough." I, I wouldn't know what he was going to say because the breakthrough could be you know, spiritual, psychological, artistic. It was a major event. It's like he looked at me and he said, I have made a breakthrough. And he did pause with dramatic effect. First, he said, I stopped reading the villain's voice. <laughs> and it was like, I'm someone has been smoking for 35 years. I've stopped reading the Wall Street Journal. Village Voice. Oh, the Village Voice you said. That I made a breakthrough. <laughs> and he said it with such intense that I thought his life was, and it was like he found Jesus or something. He didn't know what was coming next. <laughs> you know, a lot of these things are like addictions. And he felt it was major. Oh, God. I know only too well how they're like. I didn't get to my anecdotes. Better, better get to the anecdotes. Quarter to eight. Yeah, I've got a few anecdotes. You do have to do the anecdotes, Stuart. Yes, I'll do them real fast. One time, we used to have what we called our little Wednesdays, which was patterned after, sort of a, a jokey reference with Cruz. We were both Cruz fanatics. 
think there's a Madame Van Toye or something, a name like that, kind of do Tuesdays. Little people over on Tuesday nights or salon. Like a soiree. <laughs> we had our little Wednesdays. Our little Wednesdays consisted of going to theater matinees with all the shopping bag <laughs> ladies. The ladies would been shopping all day and they go to the theater and then <coughs> come on buses. You know, all these great shows on Broadway, supposedly great, and we wanted to go, we wanted to be like matinee ladies, as it were. And, we, and but, you know, instead of having the usual Bergdorf Goodman or maybe something that, I went to Tiffany's and got two little shopping bags, tiny ones. And we filled them, I think, just tissue paper, you know, but we both walked in with our little Tiffany <laughs> shopping bags. And we went, in the period of time, we saw Pearl Bailey and Hello Darling, or Marlena Dietrich at a Wednesday matinee. It had to be a Wednesday matinee. The perversity for Charles, something like Charles Lowman, uh, to go for me to be part of it, see Marlena Dietrich at a Wednesday matinee. In the audience. What do you, you know, what do you mean? Marlena Dietrich. She was performing. Oh, to, you saw yes. her do oh, her one woman show. Yeah, but, I but we could have gone to the evening. But it was fun of going with the, with those ladies from Scarsdale, just in for the day in New Jersey. And he looked, especially he said about Marlena Dietrich, that they're looking at her with such hatred because they're. 30 years younger and 50 years older. You know, she's an old lady, but she still look great. The figure and the manner. But then, to come to one, we went to see Hadrian the Seventh with uh, Alec McGowan, which was being hailed as the greatest performance ever given in the theater. Ever. I don't know if you remember, we hear or you read about it. I remember. The superlatives. I've never been equal, and I've never been taught. Hyperbolic superlatives. The hyperbole. Unequal. Unseen. Unprecedented. Never to be repeated. Have you had to go? You've got to go, right? I'm just the chair. Thank you. To see that perform, if you missed it, it was like God had come to Earth, went to the Lyceum Theater, performed for three weeks, and you didn't bother to go. I mean, it's just unheard of. You had to see it. And we went. <laughs> Charles thought, we both thought, it was so unbearably hammy and uh, cliche and predictable and pale. Lame. That was one of Charles's favorite put-down words, lame. And we started to giggle. And especially see him in those robes. During the play, like a tacky, Charles thought he was a very tacky guy in the dress and his uh, papal robes. We started to giggle, and the giggling grew and grew and grew. And people, of course, were sitting there wrapped because all of the viewers thought it was great, and some legitimately found it great. Again, it was a Wednesday matinee. Uh, the usher came and ejected us. And we, uh, and we it was the last part. I found Charlie this, and he was quoting the review. The greatest thing since, you know. You know uh, he was saying that during the performance, yeah, you know, he started it's a loud whisper. He didn't shout it out, but we were laughing and remembering the reviews, which. You have to go back and look at the reviews, the quotes that we had. No, that, that is not there. That's a great one. Yeah. It happened so hard, we were forcibly ejected. The other anecdote, in a play called Conduct Unbecoming, an English play. Yeah. It was a movie with it. I'd seen it in London. I came back. I knew Charles would love it because it was such a, it was sort of melodramatic and a, it's very cliche. It, it, was, it took itself seriously, but it was all cliche. But a well done cliche play. Uh, melodrama, suspense, spirit of melodrama. And at that time, Charles had a very long beard. Uh, and also, sometimes he was, you know, doing his drag and different roles. And it was, uh, I, I, 
I don't know if he wore a dress on the street or not. I'm not sure. Anyway, he, you know, it's always been a part of his work. And he had that long beard. And I said to Charles that I would buy two front row seats, center, to that play if he would agree to go to the show in a dress. And I accompanied him in a dress. By God, he did show up in that dress. And Wednesday night, I had the dress. The Wednesday night, the, you know, everything that implies. All the Conduct that. unbecoming. Oh, not unbecoming. So they were going down the aisle. And his Everybody long turned the long, long beard and this dress with a string of pearls. Very tasteful. <laughs> some things were tasteful about it, some things weren't. You know, it was a little outrageous as a dress as well. And he was chattering to me. And I think he was saying to me, he said, I'm doing what Jackie Kennedy does. Because the secret, she, he'd read somewhere or heard that Jackie Kennedy, when she goes somewhere, she knows all eyes are on her. But her way of sort of protecting herself or not having to acknowledge all of that uh, attention, is to just talk to the person next to her as if they were having a private little conversation, all that mattered were what they were saying to each other, just chit-chat, like no one was even noticing they were coming in, because they, and she couldn't possibly notice everyone in the world looking at her because she's engrossed in the conversation. So he was looking at me, and I was looking at her, because we were both aware that everyone was looking. That was only the beginning. So front row center... Acting totally oblivious is the point. So acting totally oblivious, very aware and then come out, and then different actors come out on the stage, and every once in a while, someone chances to, you know, the double takes <laughs> of the actors, including the double takes. And you would see actors, you know, break just for a second and go back, and then they go off, and then other actors who hadn't made their entrance yet, obviously would get the word from the guy who just was on. They'd come out already looking, you know, make a beeline. You know, it's couldn't believe it. Oh, my God, expression. Oh, my God. My expression. <laughs> And uh, so at the end, the curtain call, you know, all the actors lined up and they all went, <laughs> all looking right at Charles. And a lot of them, at that point, recognized him, too. And one of the actors was Brian Bedford, who uh, subsequently came to the ridiculous, he might have been there before, before, but they joked about it later on that Charles was dressing room with the ridiculous. But everybody in the cast was aware of it after a certain point. It was wonderful. And he was just he was sitting there like a very dainty, one finger pensively poised under his chin. Once, like he was studi- studiously engrossed in the play, like studiously involved and fi- just enjoying the performance. He never acknowledged that they were looking at him, you see, and the whole time. So they'd stare or break up or whatever was happening. And he just like, you know, <laughs> he maintained that pose the whole time. That was a great event, I'd say. Oh, there's a wonderful story. There's a yes. wonderful stories. Do you have any more? Well, the other one, I remember 14th Street going to a wig place, and he got this huge... You are looking at wigs. He needed a wig for something, I think, hot ice. I think I was trying to see if Charles could be as outrageous in real life as a theater. Well, this, that last story just proved it, but... <laughs> That was a challenge. I made another challenge for him. He had this wig. It went out like this. It like filled the wig shop. When you put it on your head, people couldn't move to either side of you because the aisle was blocked. It was such a big, thick, wide afro. And I said, oh, and it was kind of expensive. I said, I'll buy it for you if you promise to wear it out of the shop and wear it all the way home and walk all through the village, 14th Street. And he did it. And he put it on. And it was another thing. I was outside of the world. In the shop, everywhere he went outside. Because first of all, he didn't look at the kind of guy. But anyone with that afro would look weird. But also, Charles is quite fit. But he had this huge afro, and he walked all through the village. And I think he wore it in hot ice. That was the beginning of hot ice. 
The other area. The color of is really, it's the best. You should try to talk to Brian Bedford or those other actors. Right, I already have 15 interviews. Just what I did is to interview the cast. Adrian, the seventh, to have been ejected, forcibly. He thought it so insufficient, inadequate, and foolish. Bad acting. Well, that's about it. That's enough. That's already a lot. I'm sure it's more than. We do. End of interview with um, Stuart Sherman regarding Charles Ludlam. Um, But there may be a follow up. But not on this tape. Should have mine too. It's Saki. So, I don't. To begin again, this is an interview with Stuart Sherman, and it's August 10th. Well, I pity the person who transcribed me because, as you know, I can talk very, very quickly. Well, they just have to play the tape back a lot. Get the word. I remember. I remember it well. So, uh, I was in San Francisco uh, performing in a community production of The Importance of Being Earnest, playing Algernon, and the person playing Gwendolyn, uh, her name was Debbie Rosen, and then one day she said to a friend of mine, during, this is during the rehearsal period, he was coming out from New York, that I went to school with, and... Uh, acted with the school and was directed by and that was that was Charles and she was so excited to bring us together because she thought we would be instant friends. We just she just had this feeling and she was absolutely right. And so I met him in San Francisco when he was just out there on vacation. What year was this? <clears throat> when was Turrets in Hell? You must, you must have a note on that. It was sixty nine? Sixty-nine sounds right. So it must have been sixty-nine. Sixty-nine sounds right to me too. Yeah, sixty-nine. Because I know I went out there just after the. It was not sixty-eight, the height of the flower power, but the era, but it, around then, sixty-nine. It summer of sixty-nine. And, uh, Had Kent State just happened? Was that summer of sixty-nine? No, actually, the summer of sixty-nine is Woodstock. Kent State was seventy. Summer of 69 was Woodstock. When was the Manson thing? Must have been 70. I think 70 was. Yeah, it was the same summer as the Moonwalk. Yes, yes. That was 70? That's 69. That was 69? Moonwalk was 69 and Woodstock, both. Oh, right, right. I mean, the Manson Manson came later. I was talking to someone last night and I thought the Moonwalk and Manson were the same period. I guess they were a year apart. But anyway, that's we talking met. about serial killers, huh? Doing research. Yes. I went. Well, I went last night to see this film. It was on video about Manson. Mainly, it's an interview with him in prison. Two hours of him talking, and it was kind of extraordinary. You heard about it? Despite a man who wrote a book called The Manson Files, Sweezy or some name like that. But anyway, go back to Charles. Uh, 
Do you remember um, if Debbie Rosen had told you anything specifically about him to prepare you for why she thought you'd get along so well? I don't remember that, no. Um, do you remember the circumstance of your meeting? Yes, I do. I feel like I'm on trial. Now I'm going to you have to answer all the questions. I'll just answer them honestly. Johnny Carson's favorite kind of guest. Clamming yeah, yeah, yeah. up. She was staying in a hotel, I think it was called the Washington Hotel. There's a park in San Francisco called the Washington Park. Have you heard of it? Washington Park? Something, something like it. It's in North Beach. Probably that's the art at that time. Art, art, arty section. Bohemian section. All the beat poets used to hang out there in North Beach. The City Lights bookstore is there. And she was staying at a hotel. A lot of artists were and hippie type people were staying there, voice, counterculture, all that. And I remember going to she to make money would make beaded flowers. She sold it to some very good store in San Francisco and did pretty well beaded flowers. But it entailed putting lots of beads on wire. Lots and lots. And sometimes I would go over and help her put the beads on. It's, it was just the kind of work I loved to do. I like kind of painstaking, thoughtless work or idiot work. One bead after another it takes a lot of concentration and it's related to physical activity. And anyway, I, I like doing that. And I don't know if I was there doing that when Charles came in or I went over to do that and met him. And I think, and it sort of got fuzzy in my brain. That, and I was thinking about it today. It seems to me that... I talked about my liking for doing that, and uh, I don't know if he joined in or simply um, responded to my own spontaneous enthusiasm about what other people might consider an inane activity, but I think that somewhat appealed to him that I had this eccentric enthusiasm and could speak about it just like as I'm doing now, or just as I did a minute ago, and speak about it some, at some length. I could have gone on and on with some, at some depth as well, <laughs> the psychological and philosophical and poetic ramifications. And to make that the first subject, the first thing said between us, the first uh, subject of conversation, just to launch in to my love for uh, stringing the bees, not even making the flowers, just putting hundreds of bees on it. I think he got into it. I, I think one reason I think we both were very uh, pr prone to want, wanting to live in the moment I sense that from uh, Charles I think what my, my talking about what I was doing at that moment in a way, it was a kind of defense. So we, we bypassed all the usual, what do you do? What do you, I knew he was in the theater and all that, but trying to gauge each other's, or assess each other's social or cultural context, we just bypassed all of that. We just made communication in the moment and an activity happening in that space at that time. And I personally found that spiritually liberating. And I sound potential, but I think, I think Charles did too. I think it was one of the basic, one of the reasons we got along so well, that there was a, a kind of rapport which had nothing, didn't, didn't, was not the product of a kind of obvious uh, cultural similarity of interests. It wasn't that. It was this shared 
involvement and ability to dive into the moment just very, very deeply put it home in the depths of the moment, you might say. That's uh, the way I would put it. I always felt that Charles, Charles could be anywhere in maybe years and something. Immediately, there was such an enthusiasm, such an electricity when we could together relate to something happening right there at that moment, something in the environment. Um, present. It was almost as if he were shaping uh, in our immediate surroundings. I shouldn't say our, because a lot of it was also really what letting Charles do it, but I think it was sort of quickened to each other. Sometimes it wasn't a joint adventure, sort of shaping the immediate environment into some kind of poetic reality, I would say. Finding words and ways of responding to what was going on as if we were responding to a work of art. We've made it, the way. I know it's not there. This is, I'm trying to give you my feelings of what it was like to be with him. And he was very, very inspiring in that, in that, Can you in that way. And I think it was that immediacy that he was an artist that's always always creating can you recall everything any was, was useful everything was useful can you recall any incidents of it um, I mean any specific examples that would demonstrate the point besides the beads which was one beads but can you recall you know, I, mean, I could see Charles actually talking about why he might like this color or this different shape these beads were infinitesimal you know we're talking about talking about the different shapes and why he might like one over another or one one would have more difficulty going on to the wire as if you were watching little microbes under a microscope or the subatomic life or a world he went right and then of course he could pull back and talk about things in quite a broad way and uh, in a macro Macro going context. from the micro to the macro, the macro Very to the micro. Right back in. It sounds almost Which like when I, you were describing yourself to me. That's right. I, <laughs> I mean, a lot of this, I think, my relationship with Charles, I think, was that I, I, I found a lot of myself in him. I presume to think he found a lot of himself in me. That's what friends, uh, <laughs> that's what friendships often about. Rapport. Not always, but. In this particular case, I think more a case of like attracting like than opposites attracting, for instance. I think it's like unto like. From my point of view, and I, if Charles were here, he might say something quite different. He certainly would express it differently. He'd get different words. And he probably would have a new perspective. What are some of the other so ways? Yes, that's true, but also come at it from another angle. What are some of the other ways that you think he would express it differently? <laughs> um, what are some of the ways that seem to be unique to his his modes of expression? Well, I do want to give you another example. I could besides the beads. I think mm. take a moment to. Uh, mm. I want to think a little bit simmer for a while and come back to it. I think Charles wouldn't have been a, wouldn't have allowed himself to be uninter as uninterruptedly uh, earnest and uh, serious as I was about it. He wouldn't have let so much time go by without saying something howlingly funny, expressive of the point. You know, <laughs> he wouldn't have let so much 
wouldn't let comedy lie in the bands for so long. The absent from the discussion for so long. It was very difficult for Charlie. At least with me. I mean, it's my experience. Well, I would saw him with other people, but he was well, so comically people. gifted and eager to make an art that was serious and comic at all moments. So I don't know if he would let it go on quite so long. Uh, uh, it's a comic relief, but a, a kind of comic transformation of it. So you mean into, you mean what you were saying? Yes. Uh, Why do you think that, that is? I mean, what do you think it was about him that was drawn to finding the comic or creating the comic? Yeah, creating the comic. My interpreter, I would say that the balance between comedy and tragedy in his work, or seriousness and serious and non-serious, or serious and ridiculous. In his work. In his work, and in the sense of the life, or servant of the life, would have to do with, as I, this is my own feelings I've been thinking about over the years, um, a need for balance. Uh, very yin-yang. Massive tragedy and comedy balance each other. They're not really two representing two realities that are, are at war with each other. They're necessary to each other and they balance each other. So I, I felt it was always a sense. Again, I should keep apologizing for what might be projections, but a sense of balance. And, uh, it wasn't. I never felt it was like a self-destructive humor or destructive himself or destructive a mock, uh, kind of negative humor. I felt it was a very helpful kind of humor, very salubrious, really restored balance. When things, it's not that something is, is too serious or too comic, but when anything is too much of one thing, it's, it, it, it tends to, it, the scales are tipped. I think Charles always wanted to keep the scales in balance. This is my interpretation of it all. It's on that very deep level. It, it wasn't, I'm dealing, I'm dealing now purely with the form of, the, of his uh, work, of his, in, of his impulses, his needs, and the individual content. This is something else in the particular plays, the things he said. I think it was restore balance. Pure yin yang. Um, a number of people did talk about how he. The macrobiotic stuff was very deep with Charles. It's anyway, also true. Go ahead. How he seemed to be a person of great extremes and opposites. How he, but they would turn into each other, very oriental sense. And in a sense, I suppose that that's his the anger point. was like that. His, his anger, his anger, and his gentleness it was really wonderful to see. Because that that is the world. There's called anger is also what appears to be it's just a name we give to a, to eruptions, violent eruptions, force of nature. It's a settling, it's like a, an ocean that's stormy and then it's calm. This is part of nature. I think Charles wanted to allow nature to manifest itself in, in all of its remedies, in its extremities. In its extremes. Um, that's why he was, he was really a great artist. It was not the individual jokes or the themes of the plays, or the, his craft, or, 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 
all of that you can hand to him, but it was such a deep inside felt it for restoring balance. Or keeping things in tense equilibrium. Let's put it that way. Balance is too pacific a word. Pacific. Pacific a word. It's tense equilibrium, precarious equilibrium. How far you can go to one side before the moment of change into opposition occurred, that side turns into the other side. Sometimes there would be, there would be at the People often speak of this in the word. There'd be those moments when it was both at once. It wasn't the left and it turned into the right. One to the other would be both at the very same moment. That was really sublime. Which I haven't given really specific in the sense of. Could you describe his anger? Other people have referred to his his temper and his anger and his, his his moods, but how would you describe it when you witnessed it? I think uh, partly what I said. His natural, great natural eruption, but I don't know, I think I thought they were purgative. And of course, maybe other people might have, others might have. I mean, all of this, I was an observer. I was not the recipient of it. So I'm speaking with not, not, perhaps enough sensitivity to people receiving it. But I saw it as a purgative of himself. Catharsis. Which is, I mean, it's very healthy for the person releasing it. I guess for, for those of you who love the person back, you're, you're, you're holding the glass right over your oh, mouth. Oh, oh. <laughs> Purgative, cathartic. Any strong emotion is a focusing of all smaller incidents of that emotion. So my own theory, so I'm going to apply it here. Strong expression of emotions. It's like all the petty anger, the little angers, or anger from varying degrees of consciousness are gathered together to one focused expression. Spread <coughs> it out and direct it in one circumstance. It may not be the appropriate circumstance, but that's a wonderful feeling in a way. <laughs> Sharp focus. Is part of your point that he seemed to have these emotions, they were noticeably strong on him, stronger than in other people, or? Anger, or just emotions? Emotions, when you were saying oh, yes. strong emotions. Yes. Yes. Um, how would you contrast him with other people? What what seemed to be special? I mean, you may feel that you've already been saying all that, that these are all ways in which he was special, but... I think that one that, when I think about the his anger, I think of the gentleness afterwards, the relief for him, 
I have an idea what the child thinks. Well, one thing I thought, I thought Charles, uh, when Charles paid attention to something, or directed his attention to some thing to a person, to a conversation, whenever he looked at physically and psychologically, he felt his whole being was involved in that looking or that listening. And I must have just read this like 20 years ago to someone. It was just like the, the darkness. Maybe afterwards you would feel this, or you could. I mean, very romantic, but it was like a tremendous searchlight thrown on you. And only afterwards, when it, when it was taken away, did you realize what darkness you'd been in. I mean, the, the attention, the directed, the intensity of it, the totality of it, just felt that all the light in the world was coming out of you. Not a light necessarily of a sentimental sense of goodness, just, just illumination. And it, and it was as much, you had to benefit from that, just being in the presence, to be, to, be, to be the object of it, to be lit up like that. So everything you were, but then it was, he would also feel there was, he would be seen in the, in the, uh, in the space of illumination. You would be seeing things you weren't even aware of. Wouldn't, wouldn't be noticeable to you. It was, it was a very penetrating light as well. It would penetrate to levels that you were perhaps conscious of. But I, I would feel that. I think a lot of people, when I see them with other people, I think there's one reason. I think I'm sort of dividing. It's kind of externally directed. Some people have charisma, and it's, it's defined by everyone going toward them. But I, I think a more subtle definition of charisma or, or its effects would be that people go toward them because there's something coming from them. Those people that are being drawn to that person. This powerful light, I would say, drew you toward it because it came out at you. It seemed to welcome you in a And so warm. You. It's also just that attention. I mean, everyone wants to be paid attention to, to be listened to. And, and it was not just on a surface level. It was your... It's being was... was really being embraced at that moment. I don't want to make it sound like it's a love thing necessarily. It could, could be very loving. It was just your being and his being. All of his being was going toward whatever it was. Sometimes it'd be things were so trivial. You know, he would buy a hot dog. I'll just pick this up with a you know, random. I don't know. It's not a bit of a remembrance. But buy a hot dog. He might even look at that hot dog vendor and listen to the hot dog vendor ask for a dollar fifty and you know make change and then the way he was looking it's also of course he was looking like the way shining such a strong light on that person in order to see things that might be useful to him in his work. And you just feel that as well. That there was the, the way that Matt's uh, gestures and the, his inflections and movements and then the design of it, because Charles was very visual. You know, everything 
possible used in, therefore everything was of, was of interest, so that there's potential utility. But I don't want to make it sound purely exploitative, because it wasn't that. It was, it was, it was put to such a deep use. Also, a wonder at the world. Very often the wonder impels you to want to make use of the world, to do something with the wonders, otherwise it's a feeling that could destroy you. So a lot of this he was just sort of registering with wonder things that he saw. And it could go, you know, we could be having a conversation about maybe some play we'd both seen, you know, like conventional kind of conversation, or intellectual, and might suddenly switch to that waiter, the way he put this down on the table, and you know that when he, the way he observed that, talked about it afterwards, his attention on, say, the way the bowl had been placed on the table, was, was, was uh, he was giving it as much attention as he'd given to his reading of Hamlet, for instance, who might have been discussing Hamlet. It would be the same intensity, all his brain cells were uh, top, walking, you know, that was great. And, and when it came to a person, it's quite appealing. It sounds a bit like when you described, when you first described to me your impressions of when you were in Japan, in terms of your focusing on the kind of intensity that they seem to bring to. Yes, thank you. To many things that we, for example, might not observe or notice, and it's like a heightened awareness, I suppose. But a question that I have—you describe in terms of that illumination that's coming out of him and inviting people, inviting people into him is something that I think is very clear just from the history of the people who he assembled and who stayed with him through many years of getting basically little reward except for the rewards that they gave to each other. But one of the things that I find hard to understand is how it was held together for so many years and particularly how he managed to be a director when so much of it seems to rely on that one-on-oneness. I mean, what prevented more competitive kinds of feelings from coming out, do you think? I'm talking about within the company situation itself now. Mm-hmm. Um, Amongst each other? Yeah, I mean, I mean, during, I mean, for him and towards him when, when he was directing. I, I assumed where well, you were involved in a show even, but I assumed... Excuse me, Rissell. One of the things that John Brockmeyer said to me was that Charles seduced everybody, which I think maybe another way of saying the same thing. Right. Um, and it, I can see how that would operate, but what, what I find harder to 
grasp is the way that you can keep it all together. Because you're talking about so many different people. Um, and yet clearly there was this incredible affection from him and for him. Um, for all of them. It is, it really is, in retrospect, it's an amazing phenomenon, I think, um, the company itself and its history. And just speaking to all of the people I've spoken to, I mean, I'm... What do you think you learned from Charles that you wouldn't have learned from anyone or anything else? What did he specifically give to you that you could isolate? If well, I didn't. I can't really speak about the, the competition question you brought up. I, I wasn't that involved with some, you know, in the inner workings past a certain point. Um, I could speculate on that. What, what did I talk about? What I learned? Well, in terms of speculating on it, though, what would you? What did you observe in the ways he did act as a director? Was there anything, because you've also seen other directors in the world. Um, what seemed to be unusual about his methods? But my experience of the film directing was Birds of Hell, and then a, a revival of With Queens Collide, and a bit of the tarot, Grand Tarot. I didn't attend any rehearsals or anything after that. And maybe once in, in all the years that came afterwards, those are many years. And, and, and in those later years, it was a much tighter ensemble. You remember, so-called well-made well plays and, and just a few actors and the same people. And my memories go back in the early days. He was... What I, one thing that comes to my mind is... I, I remember riding back in a cab with him after Turns and Hell rehearsal, and just as, I couldn't express my delight at watching him direct and my how, how inspiring it was, how energy giving. I didn't use that term. Inspiring, what a joy it was. I, I remember him bounding up from where he was sitting. This is something I do myself, whether I inherited the Charles or it was something that would have come out anyway, because what I think are like natures. He would very often be sitting in the director's chair or the couch, or whatever, to rehearse Mario Montez's loft. And when he wanted to demonstrate what he was, something, whether it was blocking or just a gesture or the way something would be said, before you know it, you'd be off the couch. And it was almost like like thought transfer, like this, the power of thought somehow physically moved yourself by thinking about it from the couch onto the stage, into the role of the other person, or just doing what he wanted that person to do or to get, to demonstrate how the scene, the tone it should have. He was in the in in Medea's race. No, but he was in the character, but he was also, he was right in the middle of it. Like he couldn't wait, because he was a performer, unlike a lot of directors. 
he was going to end up on that stage eventually anyway. And he had to be on the stage to rehearse because he was performing in the pieces. But he believed in the scenes he was not involved with. He was so eager to get on there. I, I had the feeling that the space, the, this empty uh, loft area, we weren't even in a theater at the time, no objects, no set, no costumes at that time. But he, I, I imagine that he saw it all crystal clarity. It was perfectly real technicolor. And he was also so eager for the performance to happen. This is all my speculation, but even the first rehearsal, I, I felt Charles could taste the performance there. It was, it was no lag. You could just see it. It's the way a sculpture can see the uh, ultimate the form in the uh, unbroken clay. And every word, every direction he gave at the rehearsal was just chipping away at this thing he saw clearly was hidden underneath. And when he would leap into the space that way, it was such a uh, so physically uh, impressive. It, to me, he was presenting with our words and our actions. A lot of intangibles were for him tangible. They were physical. I remember that, the physicality of it all, and the bloodiness of it sometimes. It was just as if he were wrestling with something or working on something physical, some material substance.